0: listening to the jersey guys podcast the show that talks about hard rock heavy metal aor and west coast music in-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap so settle in and turn it up now here are your hosts tom and mark
1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Jersey Guys Podcast. This is Mark Ballow, and I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as always. Today we've got special guest Ronnie Mancuso from the band Beggars and Thieves. Uh, Of course, Beggars and Thieves is a band that's been around uh, for a while now. Their debut album came out in 1990. Uh, They've released four albums since then, and uh, they also have an EP to their credit. And uh, Ronnie was a great interview, Uh, We had a lot of fun with this one, as we'll learn and as you'll see and hear, uh, that Ronnie is just a a man of many talents, many endeavors in his life, uh, not just Beggars and Thieves. So it was a real good conversation, and uh, let's get right into it, and we hope you guys enjoy this one. Ronnie Mancuso from Beggars and Thieves. Welcome, Ronnie. Thanks for uh, joining us tonight.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: I figured I'd start with this, and... um, Everybody, you know, I think our listeners, uh, the type of music that we cover on our podcast, I think everybody's going to be familiar with Beggars and Thieves. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the early days of the band? Uh, You know, how you met the other members and how the recording contract with uh, Atlantic Records uh, came about uh, with the debut that came out in
2: 1990? Yeah, well, I I was in Los Angeles originally, and I had seen Louis when I was like a young kid, 16 years old. He was in a band, Louis the Merlino, the lead vocalist, Deggars and Thieves, was in a band called Axis, which was uh, uh, Vinny Apathy and Danny Johnson. And they had a record on uh, RCA that...
1: Oh, Tom knows about
0: I, that. I have that record. You know you know that record, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, I do.
2: Who did, um, Andy Johns produced it. Great yes. record. That's actually, that's the record that got uh, Vinny the Black Sabbath gig because they liked that record that he did. So um, when I first went to L.A., summer of 79, 16 years old. Um, it was all new wave and everybody had cut their hair and, uh, except for choir riot, which I saw at the starwood, but, um, was a strange time. So Axis had made the record on RCA as a three piece. And then they were trying to readjust. So they added Louie into the band and I saw them at the starwood and, um, and the whiskey at Gogo, and a bunch of different places. And I was a big fan of Louis, So I was able to track him down and, uh, got him to start playing with me. And then he brought in Dana Strum and we had a band that were playing all through the club circuit during that time. So I knew Louis from from then. And then uh, that fell apart, started working at Pasha. Me and Dana and the drummer started working as a house band at Pasha Music Studios, which is right around the time they had the Quiet Riot's big album. So it was an exciting time there. We were doing all sorts of records and projects and we worked with an artist named Danny Spanos, who had a pretty big record at the time, Hot Cherie. So we toured with him. And, and during that time, Louis moved to New York. So I'd always stay close with Louis. And then at some point, I ended up going to New York. And uh, he was doing jingles. So he introduced me to the Scott Schreer, the gentleman that he works for. And I started writing jingles. And I thought, wait a minute, there's really good money in this. And <laughs> So
1: <laughs> Well that that's I a story up. we've heard a million times and we've had guests on before and everybody's kinda of dabbled in that and yeah, they say it's great money.
2: Especially back then you get the sag on air residual, so it was really nice. You could, you know, have plenty of time to do other things. So I moved to New York and then me and Louis put together Beggars and Thieves and it happened really quickly. We played like five or six shows, but also during that time Louis was doing working with Jasmine Childs when he did the you know a bunch of projects with desmond child so we wrote oh, wow. some songs with him and then it was real fast i think after six gigs we had like three record deal officers so. and had set, to settle on atlantic <laughs> um it was the legacy i think more than anything we sat with vomited again and i thought you know that yeah. company just all the things that he had done and, and uh, right or wrong we chose atlantic <laughs>
1: Now, how did you uh, bring in, you had uh, Bobby Borg on drums and Phil Suzanne, of course, uh, from Ozzy Osbourne's band and stuff. How did, how did they come into the mix with the band?
2: Well, the demos that we did with Desmond were with Bobby Shenard on drums and Huey McDonald from Bon Jovi on bass. Oh, okay. And, uh, and uh, Bobby's a monster drummer. But we really wanted uh, our own band. We were talking know? about we, that before we went on the air, uh,
0: Bobby and... Um course he played on your sec the second th- beggars and thieves album. he played on the second beggars and thieves, you know. did, yeah, yeah yeah and i, I was telling mark i said the guy was so friggin good he was like you know like an upper echelon drummer of that era which says a
2: lot into itself he was he had a feel that was just undeniable it's just uh i think he's one of the most sampled guys too the original hip-hop was was big beat by billy squire which he played on and then right walk this way with the original breaks that like they started creation of hip hop so he's he was deep and uh just had that studio thing too i worked with him uh, he did alice cooper trash he did share heart of stone records Records that i worked on with desmond um so he was a monster but once again he was a session guy and we were trying to be a, a rock band of the era so bobby came in i liked his energy i thought he was a real solid player and then we tried a bunch of bass players and we were out in L.A. and Phil just was, Phil had it going on in all all areas. He's He had the great legacy already from playing with Billy Idol and Ozzy. And uh, he fit the part and that's how he put the band together.
1: Now you mentioned that uh, the band only played about six shows before you got signed. Um, did you guys tour a lot or play a lot of shows after the album came out in, in the area? Because Tom and I are, you know, big New York, New Jersey guys our whole lives. And I mean, I, I seem to remember like the only show I can and Tom, we were talking about this before we started it. the only time I remember seeing you guys play was a, a show at the Ritz opening for somebody, but I can't remember who.
2: We did, uh, we, we did, we didn't tour extensively, but we did a bunch of shows with Tesla. We played the, when uh, they did the five man acoustical uh, band, maybe that opened those shows. Yes. Yeah. And okay. we also did a bunch of shows with Dockin, but I think it was Don Dockin at the time, actually, cause when he first did his first solo record. Right. Oh, okay. And maybe it was that. But we, we we didn't go out and do like a... We didn't do like 10-month tour or anything like that. We would just do pockets of shows at different locations, yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Where did the name Beggars and Thieves come from?
2: Well, we had a song first, the song Beggars and Thieves, and we were looking for a band name. And Louie's girlfriend at the time was really good friends with uh, Nick Rock, who's a, a fashion photographer. I mean, all the Queen stuff. And um, more interestingly... Um, Who's the gentleman from the Rolling Stones that was their publicist, Andrew, Lord, uh, Andrew Oldham. And Andrew Oldham is a gentleman that locked Keith and Mick in a room and said, write songs. I mean, he was the one that came up with, uh, would your daughter want to marry a Rolling Stone? That All that stuff, right? right? So he was a hugely influential guy. And him and Mick Rock, who I know, you know, Mick Rock's photos from Queen, all the Bohemian Rhapsody, all that. Sure. And then Iggy Pop stuff. And they were we're having dinner with them one night. And... He said, name it Beggars and Thieves from the song title. There was a list of things that were there, and we liked, we liked the sound of it. And uh, just getting that yes from Andrew was like, okay, we'll go in that direction. <laughs>
0: okay. So the song came first, and then the, the, uh, the name of the band came from the song. Correct. It was like the, the chicken and egg thing. We had to kind of get that out there.
3: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I think one of the biggest questions I've always wanted to ask you, even going as far back as when this album came out, what were some of your influences, yourself, Louis, um, with this band? Because you guys sounded like nobody else. And there were very few bands at that time that had a real identifiable sound. As, as many great bands as, as there were at the time, there were still a lot of bands that, you know, like they called from Zeppelin and Whitesnake, Rainbow, Sabbath. Uh, you guys had a very identifiable sound, kind of like a, like a King's X or a Diving for Pearls. Uh, band, bands of that time that really didn't sound like anybody else. Like, where did you, where would you I- identify as your sound and your inspirations, and where did the sound come from?
2: Let's see, um, the first Montrose album, uh, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust, something uh, monumental albums in my career. Zeppelin, obviously. Um, Aerosmith, Get Your Wings, Rocks, and Toys in the Attic. Um, I think Louis was. Heavily influenced by Steve Marriott, Humble Pie, obviously Lou Graham, those kind of Paul Rogers, who's the, the god of all those type of singers. Everybody's influenced by Paul Rogers. Um, slant. So so, uh, Cheat trick was huge in my childhood. But I also liked funk and I also liked funk and jazz and fusion when I was a kid, you know, so I, I like Sly Stone. I liked all sorts of music, anything that was really good. But it had to be soulful and funky and, and have a, a vibe to it. You know, I was never into like classical metal. I mean, I like love Deep Purple, but I was, you know, soulful m- music was always important to me.
0: Well, that's interesting because you could hear um, a little bit of that, like in um, Billy Knows Better, Waiting for the Man. Like those songs had a little bit of that, like that offbeat bass and, you know, vocal phrasing in them.
2: Well, you know, like a lot of people that took from Zeppelin, they took the more, most bombastic parts of zeppelin like obviously white snake did that was like the and i like the funky zeppelin i like the ocean and dire Maker and I, you know i like the you know those type of tracks more so uh i think i took a different type of zeppelin just like a lot of guitar players took from hendrix and then eddie dunhalen took from clapton but you wouldn't you know you wouldn't really think of it right off the dot to think that he was his biggest influence was Clapton, but it was so I didn't take from the bombastic aspects of that music. I took from the more subtle aspects. The
0: more tasty aspects of it, right? Than The the, the more like hard rock metal leanings of it. Right. Yeah, more from the subtle stuff than the
2: flashy stuff, I guess you'd say.
0: The song Your Love Is In Vain, it always reminded me of early 70s Stones. Would, Would I be off on that? No, I really
2: loved the Jimmy Miller era Stones, you know, with Mick Taylor. Me too. Right? That's so, far and away the best era of the Stones. That's in my just the, that was that was the best. You know, I have to say, I just saw the Stones a couple months ago, and it just blew my mind how good Mick Jagger was at his age. It just was astonishing how good he was. What an inspiration for anybody that's getting older and feeling tired or whatever. Just go watch that guy, and, and you know, Tyler too. I saw Tyler a couple maybe a year and a half ago, right before COVID. I mean, yeah, so it's longer than that. And McCartney, those three are, are I've seen them all in the last five years, shall we say, and they're very inspiring for anybody that's getting up in the age. Just say, Whoa, we'll just see those guys. You know? The
0: thing with the Stones is when when Mc Taylor left, they they lost all of that virtuoso guitar playing, which they never had before or never had after. And so it's kind of a niche in time, you know, like that sixty nine
2: to seventy five period. It is, and, and the way, you know, and Ron Wood was actually really good. And, and I, I like him a lot, but he's like another Keith. You're absolutely correct. That was, you had a more specifically guitar player with Mick Taylor. And it just really, they complimented each other more, I think.
0: Well, you know how Ron Wood got, got that gig because out of all the guys they auditioned, one of which was Jeff Beck, they felt that Ron Wood looked the most like a Rolling Stone. And that's how <laughs> he got the gig.
2: That's <laughs> true. And, and, he, and he still does. And, and he, he still does. Really good. Yeah, and he gets along great with Keith and they, you know, it it works. So, sometimes the chemistry of a band, I mean, some of the best bands um individually you would think, but when you put the right pieces together, the uh the sum is better more important than the parts, you know what I mean? A lot of the best bands are that way. There's something about the way they play together or how they their individual styles fit together,
0: you know? My other question I wanted to ask you about the debut album, which I always thought of at the time too, you guys saved what I thought was the best track on the album for the last track. And you <laughs> rarely see a band do I usually, you know, albums are like kind of <laughs> like, a, it's like a major league batting, batting order. And as you, as you start to get into eight, nine and 10, you know, it's the, it's the lesser, right, right. but you, you saved the cleanup hitter for the last track. on oh, the. That album. was the first, first video, right? Right. Um, whose, whose idea was that? And but were you guys that sure yourselves? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that was Cliff Bernstein's idea. Um, if I if I remember correctly, but it was like the statement, and it's it was like who we were. We always tried to end the albums with like a, a ballad or a, a statement kind of song. I think "Look What You Create" we did the same thing with that. It's just a monster song,
0: and I always thought of like you know it, it's 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 at the very end, and you always hope that people you know listen to entire albums and don't get tired after the seventh or eighth track,
2: you know. Well, you know. <laughs> I really believe in the, still do, although I think it's not relevant anymore. The idea of an album is a collection of songs um, that flow together nicely. So even when we did We Are the Broken Hearted, there was a bunch of songs that were on the uh, Firefest EP. There were some of the better songs, but they fit together. I made that album fit together. I like the idea of an album that you play all the way through, you know, both sides and then go back to the first side. I recently got a record player again, and uh, Brent Fitz is a good friend of mine plays with Slash, and he gave me Slash's new album. And the relationship I have with vinyl is completely different than an Apple Music playlist or a Spotify playlist. It's, I have the relationship with Slash's new album like I did as a kid with an Aerosmith album, where I put it on, and then after you listen to both sides, I'd pay the first side or my favorite side for like the next couple of weeks and just listen to that side and then turn it over and after four or five songs you got to take the needle off. It's you're looking at the album cover. You're so the whole visual experience of, of vinyl is um, it's a different experience and I think a lot more rewarding. I and mean, but the idea of albums it seems like a lot of records in the last 20 years it's like eight or nine tracks in and then they at the end of it they put like three other songs that are failed attempts at singles or something. You know what I mean? Like now you got 15 songs. It's like, I don't want 15 songs. I want 10 songs that make sense together. Well, that,
0: that started with the advent of the CD because they were able to put more material. And then it was a competition. If you, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you do remember it was like, you know, somebody had 13 songs and then somebody squeezed in 14 and then 15. Now all of a sudden you have really what's a double album squeezed into You know, one CD, very hard to digest 14 or 15 songs.
2: Yeah, I I totally agree. And a lot of them sound like attempts at singles that didn't. So they just instead of one complete thought But all the albums I grew up, I'm sure you did, too. The albums we grew up, Who's Next? I forgot to put that as far as my influences. That was huge, huge influence, mine. Who's Next? Um, Those kind of albums, you know, you could play them all the way through. There's no reason to ever take the needle off the record.
0: But those albums also had I, their own, uh, like their own personality, because you had the side one and you had the side two, and you always had the one side that you favored a little bit more, and mm-hmm. you and you lost that with the CD because it all
2: just blended, you know. It, yeah, and then now with playlists, it, it's like I think Spotify and Apple Music. Their normal setting is shuffle. It's like they don't want you to listen. It's hard. They make it inconvenient. You can listen to the album. Yes.
0: It's the complete opposite.
2: Yeah. Of what we grew up on. What there's no question about it. Yeah. Then and it's not better or worse, it's just completely different. But to me it's the uh the weight of the music isn't the same as it as it was it.
0: Well, yeah, I mean also not to sound like a pair of old geezers talking exactly. about this. Stuff. Which we are. Which, which we often. are, which we are. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm 63. I, I go back, you know, from this the whole era of the 70s. But quite honestly, I think that we really had the ability to sit back and digest music much more than this generation. Everything is very immediate. Not only music and sports and news. Everything is immediacy. Well, I think we grew up in an era where we still had patience
2: that's true yeah and that 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 experience of getting a new record oh my what was god listen to i think i was just listening to uh, uh todd rundgren being interviewed by rick rubin he was saying when he got revolver and coming like, locking the doors and putting the outs getting the exact state spot he wanted to sit in and then Putting on that record and listening to it. No, I was that way too
0: as a kid. I really was. I can still remember things. I I, I I remember things from my teenage years, all based on albums and music and concerts and yeah. It's it, it, I, I get it.
2: Believe. Me. <laughs> and now, who's going to listen to even a song without looking at their phone? You know, you know. It's just, it's just I, a I, different... That's what I'm
0: saying. And even and it even spills down to us as older guys. I, I find that I have like not the attention span that I used to, just because
2: of the world that we live in. Right, which is neither, it's just the world keeps progressing, technology keeps changing, and it becomes different. So everything now is a, you know, a TikTok video, which can be really entertaining, and there could be lots of new kid musicians that are coming up. It's, it's astonishing the quality of musicians that is popping up. Just so many young kids that can really play. And that's because they have access to all that information. But the way they succeed now, it's... It's, it's totally different than it's, the way you learn. Like, yeah, somebody said, oh, you see that drummer, some female drummer? Oh, she's got the gig with uh, whoever, you know, or some bedroom guitar player. Um, I saw a thing, it's a bedroom guitar player from Japan at the booth, the Ibanez booth at uh, NAM. And I expected some kid to come up and shred and play this most beautiful, like, quiet music with tapping, some weird techniques. So there's a lot of great things going on. It's just different from our era and... uh I don't hear rock music having the weight that it had back then so. or the way we experience is not the same. No,
0: it, I, I don't either, but I'm going to move on to the second album now. Now there was quite a few years in between these two albums. Could you tell us what entailed between 90 to 97
2: from album one to two? Okay. So what happened was we were in New York and we're supposed to do your loves in vain. And Cliff Bernstein had an idea for us to go down to New Orleans and make a video. And that would have been the next song. And then the way I remember it is the guitar player in Def Leppard passed away. And Q Prime was heavily distracted with all of that when that happened. And the, the energy at the record company kind of went down and when we had our moment in time. Because the first single, Beggars and Thieves, we had over 100 stations. So it was it was... Just about to cross over. We're at a pretty good place. And then, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. Who's the guitar player from Deathlet that passed away? Steve Clark. Steve Clark passed away. They were heavily distracted, as they obviously had to be. And that sort of fell by the wayside. During that time, Bob Pfeiffer was an A&R guy who had really good success with Alice Cooper Trash. Um, And he really wanted the band. He wanted the band from the beginning. So, Q-Prime, we made a decision to... um, instead of going back to Atlantic and moving on to your loves in vain to move over to Epic and make a second record with Bob thought it would be a much better circumstance for us over at Epic. But unfortunately then Atlantic didn't want, didn't want to let us go. So that whole process was like a year. I had moved back to LA. I remember it's right when the, uh, I think the first Gulf war started. Um, and I had a home in LA. So, Since we're going to be on Epic, I thought I'd I'd go back there. And um, Phil was there. And uh, we waited and waited and waited. And it's a very stressful time for me. But then we did we and released from Atlantic. And we were signed to Epic, another big, huge record deal, big money record deals back in that time. Right. And so then we started, uh, Bob Pfeiffer sent us up to uh, write with Jim Valance in Vancouver. And you know who jim balance is i, I know, yeah, i'm sure, sure you Br- did brian adams uh... brian adams aerosmith scorpions all this, and he was wonderful i really enjoyed he was a, a definitely a, a good influence a big, good influence and a mentor to me in production and all sorts of things so we spent a bunch of time writing with him and then we finally got it all together and then we went up there paul northfield was the engineer who had done the rush moving pictures and those two big Rush records and Queens, right? bunch of stuff. wonderful engineer. But unfortunately, by the time we finished that record, it was Nirvana party overtime. You know, so that's just
1: the famous, the famous story that so many bands <laughs> went through,
2: you know, and I, I didn't get it. Cause I liked, I love Soundgarden. You know, I, I, I liked that kind of music. I thought, you know, Motley Crue will make a great record or somebody will. And, and, I didn't, I didn't understand that those things couldn't coexist at the same time.
0: Well, Molly Crew did make a great, right? A great down-tuned, did, right? a great
2: down-tuned record with a d-
0: different singer, and nobody liked it other than me.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mick Mars likes this and whatever. Yeah, he does.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mick Mars is, is very big and
2: it, any anything It's a good record. Anything Bob Rock produces is amazing. Oh, my so, God. It had
0: one of the most incredible productions, that record. It shook
2: the house. I still think there's no better-sounding records than... Uh, Bob Rock's uh, The Black Album, and, and obviously... Dr. Yeah, he got a bottom post. end that very few guys got. Still to this day, sonically, when Kickstart comes on the radio, even Sonic Temple, the cult album. That's those, another great sounding obviously, record. Obviously, yep. yeah, those, sonically, those are the best sounding records, even to today, even by today's standards. I, I agree. But, but anyway, so by the time we finished the record in Vancouver, which is what he said a year and a half, two years later, Epic was no longer... It was over. It Was game over for everybody? You know that it was for everybody. I thought we're not a hair metal band. We're like a classic rock band. But there's, there was no. At well, that you, point yeah, in time, you we had to come in, in some sort that. of wave. Yeah. We were we were already in Metal Edge and we were already in. Yep. you know, so even though we were first album, I was. Uh, I remember a reviewer saying, the only other person that played like me was the guitar player from Mother Love Bone, which was the guys from Pearl Jam. So. I didn't see that. I didn't see us being that far off, but it, it was so more cultural, I guess, than anything else. And then it, it just all of a sudden, it didn't matter anymore. It was over, you know, for a long time, really. So, unfortunately, that's what happened to us. So, I was in LA at the time, and Louie was in LA, and uh, I was able to retreat into writing music for Fox Sports and a lot of. Uh, re- radio music and jingles and stuff like that and continue to make a living in the music business, which is pretty good as it is, you know. Uh, and uh, then MTM Records in Germany contacted us and they uh, they wanted to put out Look What You Create. And uh, they were able to negotiate points override or something with with Epic. And that's how that record came out.
0: Ah. What were your feelings on that record? Because I I really liked it a lot. I thought it was almost on par with, with the first one. Yeah. Um, Did you guys have
2: the same feeling about it? I I think sonically it's really good. I think song wise, there's a lot of good stuff on it. I don't think it's as cohesive as the first record. Right. Right. But it's close. I thought, but but it's really good. I, I like it a lot. I wish we would have been a little more tuned into the, direction of what we're trying to do but a lot of great songs sonically great playing and sonically it's really good paul northfield's a, a monster engineer like uh, that's always sonics have always been really important to me how records sounded and bobby Shenard plays really well you know red rose parade and some of these other there's some monster drumming on it so um yeah I'm, I'm, there's really not a record that i'm embarrassed by which is really important because as you get older you like occasionally i'll put something on and say i might have missed the mark a little bit here or there but i i never cringe which i do when i listen to a lot of other things that people have done or i've done you know what i mean so i'm always proud of the beggars material it stands the test of time it's good classic hard rock you know so
0: with its own sound which is what i always liked about it you guys sounded like nobody else you had your own sound and like i said Thank, before, i appreciate that there were only a few bands in that era that really had that, and Kings X was one of them. You guys, Kings were not- X really did. I love Kings X. Right. Yeah. And and there were so many great bands. You know, Blue Murder, Badlands, all those type of bands. But there was all you know, Rainbow, and 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 Zeppelin, Worship, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I love that. But there was so many bands like that, and there were only a couple of bands that really separated themselves from the herd. And I always thought Beggars and Thieves were one of them.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's nice to know.
1: I, I remember it's funny. I, I when the album first came out, and I was trying to tell friends, and I was like, "This band, they're, they're great." But I'm like, and they're like, "What do they sound like?" And I'm kind of like. I don't even know how to explain it, you know, like as far as the sound or who you would, you can compare yourselves to. And it's, it was like, I almost was, I think one of the things I used to say back then, I'm like, think of like a, I don't know, like a light version of like Badlands maybe. Because only because I always compared Badlands with something you just said that it was like a classic rock sound, you know, but they were kind of lumped right. in with that, that, that hair metal era, you know, and I'm like, I don't know how to even explain like Beggars and Thieves, you know, it's, it's, it's a lighter version, but it's classic rock in a way.
2: That's what we, you know, what we grew up with the sum of all those influences, you know. But Louis didn't have that whiny voice. He didn't have that kind of, you know, that that style, that Vince Neil kind of. uh, No, he had a very, very
0: different voice from everybody else. And your your guitar style also was different. And I was
2: never a shredder. That was not where I came from. I was a, a Jeff Beck guy, you know, and. David Gilmore, those are my. No, two, you played for you know, the song,
0: which I always, I grew again from the '60s and the '70s. I always preferred guitar players that played for the song. The shred thing is 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 fun, and it does fit with some bands. But if you most of the stuff you go back, like you said, you like David Bowie. I mean, Mick Ronson was the epitome
2: of that type of guitar player. Oh, he was wonderful. I saw I saw Randy Rhodes uh, at the Starwood with Quiet Riot, and like. I don't know, 77, I'm not even sure when I was 16 or 15. I, I was like, oh, my God, he's wonderful. But he, he obviously was hugely influenced by Mick Ronson. That was his. He, well, he, like he even he copied Mick
0: Ronson's look. A lot of people don't even know that. The
2: look, too. Absolutely. Abs- yeah, I, you know, there. like people
0: that aren't as old as I am or, or go back and delve into this stuff as much as I did. Don't realize how much he copied, even the way he held his guitar, his stage movements, the way he dressed, the way he had his hair. I mean, obviously he had you know the real shredded type of
2: chops, too. But he took that to another level, but you're right, that's where it came from, just like uh, Angus Young came from Paul Kossa, which I didn't know so much later
0: right. Absolutely. If you look at those
2: early free, there's a free video of like Isla Wright or something, and the vibrato and the, the stance and the whole thing. obviously Angus took it to another level. But I think that happens with everybody. You know, I mean, everybody's got to start somewhere, and then they hopefully. Ah, uh, I mean, what better
0: guys than Ronson and Kosoff to uh, decide to copy yourself? <laughs> I
2: know, right? <laughs> it's, it's usually the more. It's usually the guys that play less inspire the guys that play more, and then yes. the guys that, and, and then the guys that are inspired by the, the guys that play more aren't the guys you end up being classic because right. they become too
0: much. You know? So, on the third album, you guys stay with MTM. Uh, don't This time only two years goes by. What was the whole writing process and where were you
2: guys at at that point? Okay, at that point, um, I'm now in Vegas. And, uh, so I was in New York. I was uh, When I was 16, I moved to L.A. Then I moved to New York. Then I moved to L.A. Then I moved back to New York one last time in the 90s. And that's when I did... I worked for um, Raucous Records, which was... Um, he's a gentleman um i'll think of it in a second here so i worked at Rockus records and i was producing bands for them and james murdoch rupert murdoch's son oh, okay. that's what it was but yeah Big he's the head of news court now he's, he's a hugely powerful man he's a young kid at this point he put this label together and so i was working with them and i did motor baby and they had called plastique and they ended up becoming real successful at, at one point. But so I then I my son was born and I was still mostly doing uh, Fox sports music and making a living. And I realized I didn't have to be anywhere. So at that point, I could do it from anywhere. And so at that point, I said, I'm going to go back to Vegas because my grandparents were there. My family's there. I want them to enjoy my child. I ended up having my daughter when I was there. So I come back to Las Vegas in the early 2000s and uh MTM. We had some leftover songs from Look What You Create. And I think we wrote three or four or five more. And uh, we did that album really cheap. Really, you know, did it in my living room, I think, the other songs. So we had some leftover Jim Balance songs um, that we had written with Jim Balance, like Faster, or whatever it was. And so that record was thrown together really quickly, but there's a lot of couple songs in that um, that I really still like a lot, you know. Uh, in between, I think it's one of the best lyrics I've ever written. Um, so. And
0: you saved that for the last song on the album,
2: too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I don't, you remember I, do I, I don't even remember. It's the last the track album. on the album. I like <laughs> that song, too. I, I thought this album personally was a little less accessible to me. Like I, I had a harder time getting into it overall
2: uh it didn't flow quite as well um you know what happened is they they sequenced that album and when they put don't call it love i think was the first track on that album i never i never listened to it again because i i didn't want that on there it was like at that point in time it was like i'm gonna do anything so that that's the most discombobulated of the bunch for sure i would agree yeah Glad we Even though there's moments that I'm proud of.
0: No, there are. There were a couple of really good songs on it. I just didn't think
2: that it flowed. And I had nothing to do with the sequencing of that album. I, in fact, I, I sent it to them in one way and it came out. And like I said, once I heard that, I never listened to it again for 10 years because I was so frustrated by the process. But, you know, such is the business. They were, you know, somebody wanted to put it out. It was like, uh, it's funny. There's one good story from for that album that was his... Uh, Louis and me were fighting at the time, and he was mad at me for something, and he wrote me this letter, and he's he's like, "You're not a friend of mine. You haven't been a long time. I'm done with you." And and <laughs> so I took that, and I turned it into a lyric, and I said, "All right, Louis, we'll we'll do this album, but you have to sing this this song that you wrote <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> as a fun. letter being mad at me." And that's the song "Done," which is actually a cool song. But oh wow! <laughs> it, it's so that's all right, Louis. So he he sang it and we made up as we do, you know, like brothers, you know, but, uh, so yeah, that's the gray album. I actually, I don't even have a copy of it. I need to get a copy of it. That's the only thing that in the live album, are not, not up on Apple music or Spotify. And I want those to be, because at least everything that we've done is out there. Right, you have the you full know? package up.
1: Well, I was just saying that to Tom earlier. I said, you know, I go back and I was kind of getting a little refresher course before the interview here tonight. And I said, you know, I, I, the only song, the only album that's not up on, on Spotify is, is, you know, that album. <laughs> Well, it probably makes sense what you said, I mean, about, you know, you had probably a a group of songs that were written for the the prior album, and then, you know, you wrote some others, and then you you, you turn it over to the label, and they kind of sequence it, and how they want to do it, and you're throwing songs maybe that were older songs together with newer written songs, and it's...
2: Yeah, it it wasn't written as one project or one one vision. Well, that's what it kind of sounded like. And and that's what it sounds like, so yeah. Right,
0: and it also didn't have one of the most uh, exotic front covers
2: either. No, it didn't. <laughs> I still like the concept, though. I like the Grey album. I like that being stuck in the middle somewhere between the Black album and the White album.
0: Now we have a really big uh, gap again in, in releases. Um, tell us a little bit about what led up to uh, We Are the
2: Brokenhearted and what went on before that. Well, at that point, we were done. There was not. There was really no reason for us to continue if I would have known things that I know now maybe I would have attempted to go into the European market earlier and uh, but it felt to me like there was no audience for us I didn't realize that there was some real love out there for us and uh, so I helped Louie Louie was singing in in Las Vegas and, and making a living as a singer and and we did some uh, he was doing different bands in city centers and he was able to do some things and I was obviously still, Writing library music, still making pretty darn good living being a musician, which is hard to do as it is, right? So, um, somewhere around 2009, a gentleman from Sicily, which me and Louie are both Sicilian, so Paolo Siciliano. I'm half, S- S- I'm
0: half Sicilian.
2: <laughs> so you know, okay. So he contacts us, and he's like a big fan of the band, and he's like, we end up going to his house and overlooking the bay in sicily's got beggars and thieves posters and he's like a a really big fan of the band so that was the impetus to start maybe doing something and now at this point um kevin Cherko, who's a still a huge huge metal producer you know you know he does five finger death punch disturbed in this moment hell yeah I did their last two records at my studio um he built a studio next door to me in, in the shopping center that my restaurant is in. I have a, I have a recording studio, and he took this, this space next door and built a recording studio. So I had all these uh, things going on, and we had an opportunity to go. Initially, we played Firefest just with me and Louie, and we played the party downstairs. We didn't play the actual event, but we went over to Nottingham, England. And I get over there, and I find out there's a lot of people who know who Pegasus Thieves is. I, to me, I'm thinking, Nobody gives them. A- I don't know if I can cuss on here, but oh, sure. uh, nobody, nobody gives a fuck. He's like, <laughs> who cares about us? And I get over there and there's like guys coming up to me with singles. I've never even seen shaking. Oh, I love your, I'm like, really? Okay, cool. This is cool. You know? And we played and there was a lot of respect and and now there was a reason to do something. And, and I also had the means of production because, you know, in the eighties or even in, into the nineties to make a good sounding sonic album costs a lot of money. You can't, Nowadays, anybody in a laptop can make a record, and it, it'll sound pretty good, too, because they're not recording real drums or whatever it may be, you know? So um, through the the love of Apollo, he became kind of our manager, and um, he was able to negotiate us a deal uh, with Frontiers, who obviously owns that type of music. And I felt like there was a reason, and at this point, um, I get re-inspired again. So I said to Louis, I said, Louie was very busy and he was working a lot. I said, we've always been like Led Zeppelin. You know, we just do it together. This time we're going to be like The Who. I'm going to write the songs. You're going to sing them. Are you cool with that? And he said, yeah, I'm cool with that. So I uh, got out my acoustic guitar and wrote, I went to a trip to Newport. I wrote like three or four songs there. And uh, I just concentrated on writing a bunch of songs that felt relevant to where I was at that point, you know. And uh, then we went about... I know what happened. Okay, so I was trying to figure out how to record the album, and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts happened to be coming through town. And Tommy Price and Enzo, who's the bass player and drummer, or were the bass player and drummer in, in Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, came over and we jammed one night. And I'm like, I got to use these guys, especially Tommy's just a monster drummer, man. He's, since Bobby Shenard, he's the guy that can just, just has that swing. I can't describe what it is, but he's a, he played on Rebel Yell and tons of, tons of records. Um, he's a well-respected New York session drummer.
1: Yeah, well, Tom and I were just talking about that before we uh, we started. <laughs> yeah, he's been in everything. He's been in a lot of bands.
2: He's a monster, man. It, you know, the thing is, it's so hard. There's so many great drummers, but in the studio, there's not that many. Les Warner's great from the cult who I've worked with a lot um, that have that swing. And it's not always, you don't always need that. But for the kind of music I like, you have to have a certain type of swing was Chenard, Les Warner, Tommy. Jeff Picaro, uh, Jeff guys. Beccaro made a guy. Like, oh, Picaro! <laughs> oh, <laughs> you play a shuffle like yeah, nobody, right. man, right? Yeah, and there's, so, but it's a very unique thing. It's very subtle. You can't describe what it was. So I figured out a way. I said, okay, I want to do this record with these guys, even though it's going to cost me a part of my budget, a good part of my budget, because i got to fly him out and put him up. Kevin Circo was wonderful, and he helped me get everything set up, you know, mic'd everything for me. He was working on an Aussie album at the time. I needed a bunch of preamps. So he said, you know, pay my son to move them over there. I'm, I'm not using them anyway. So he came in my room and helped me get the drum sound and the, get the whole band set up. And we spent like a month and we recorded all the songs, plus a bunch more, uh, for we are the broken hearted. And then I just spent a lot of time in making that record. Uh, and then at the end, Kevin mixed it, and uh, I'm real proud of that record. I think it's a good record.
1: Yeah, no, I know you've always said it, and I've read in interviews that yet it kind of is your favorite "Beggars and Thieves" album, right?
2: I don't know. It's hard to say because for this moment in time, it is. You know, I'm proud of that album. I think the uh, obviously the first record resonates with probably the most people, but I'm proud of that album. So yeah.
1: It's, no it's a great album I, I wanted to ask you about a particular song on that and tom and i were talking about this before we we went on the air um the song wash away can you tell us anything about that it's it's a song that just every time i hear it it
2: just it gets my attention have you seen the lyric video i just put out on that no i'll send it to you i, was, I should have sent it to you before i just put a lyric video on that oh wow um it's uh it's a song that resonates with me too it's a song i wrote on acoustic guitar and uh I don't, I, I don't know what any of my songs are about, they're just, it's better when you kind of don't, so everybody can have their own interpretation, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, I really like the songs about this, but it's about letting go, and it's just a song I'm really proud of, the way it came out, I think it's a really nice piece of work, you know, it's one of my favorite pieces of work I've ever done, yes. Yeah. I
3: wanna take you inside and left the child
0: It might be the best of all four albums from song one to song ten. There were ten songs on this because there was not anything that was even remotely filler on it. Not that there necessarily was on the first album, but I didn't think there was even a letdown on this album. It was just ten really well-crafted Super catchy. I remember the first time I, I got this album. It first came. I remember the first time I, I listened to it through, every song right off the bat stuck with me. It wasn't one of those things you had to listen to, you know, four or five times to
2: start to get. Well, thank you very much. it means a lot, man. Thank you. Yeah, I was. Um, but you know the the pro, the process of that is. That's why it's, uh, the Firefest EP like Stone Alone is a really strong song. There's a and um, Little Love Survives a really strong song. i really wanted the the album to flow so i took those songs off just so that they would all flow together the sequencing was hugely important on that album so that hopefully i would have the effect that it had on you
0: yeah no whatever you were setting out to do you accomplished it
2: thank you that means a lot to me i appreciate it because it's really hard to do you got to be the tempos and the the keys and you know all that's so important when you're if you're going to have a a continuous listening experience you know what i mean you know you could put one song after the other song and go ah now i want to you know you put a record on and all of a sudden you take t- i can take it off why you know that that feeling when they don't flow together nicely and that's not like the albums we grew up loving that's not like who's next or houses of the holy or whatever you know or ziggy stardust every song flows into the next right because there was a lot a,
0: of there was a lot of time and attention placed in that as opposed to you know decades after where you'd listen to an album, be two or three songs in, it, and then there was some clunker that just threw the whole record off, and you had to stay with it for it to hope for it to come
2: back again. Exactly. The other thing about now is you can't even do that because a lot of times the, the space between the songs is really important, also. So I crossfade certain songs so they go into the next song. So I remember cutting them. So if you went on the CD to track three, you'd hear the tag of track two because there was no other way around that. And then you think after the third song, I need two seconds here. I need to pause. You know, you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's like editing a movie or something, you know, you want it to all flow and it's, you can't do that anymore because no matter what, you're going to have two seconds between each song, you know, it's just, if you're doing it on a playlist. So, so, uh, well, I appreciate that you guys got that because I put a lot of time and energy into that record I'm proud of it. Well, that,
1: that was 2011. Um. We're, we're now in 2022. Uh, anything maybe on the horizon
2: for Beggars and Thieves? Uh, there could be, there could be. There was a uh, talk about maybe M3 or Monsters of Rock Cruise or something. Because,
1: oh, yeah, that would be
2: perfect. We have all the original members and we don't play a lot, so sometimes they like to put something that uh, um, hasn't been out there, you know, saturating the clubs all year long, you know. Um, so that's a possibility you you never know and we could record more if there's a reason to or a song for a movie or something i mean i'm still i'll be tied to the hip with louis for the rest of my life obviously he, he's still in town still got a good instrument um so who knows anything's possible
1: well let's talk about um other things that you do you, you know Beggars and thieves isn't just the only thing you do. Um, you're a man, as I said in the beginning, uh, of many endeavors. Uh, talk a little bit, if you can, about the the restaurant uh, that you own, the Bootlegger Italian Bistro, out in Las Vegas. Um, understand, it's it's something that's been a, a staple on the Vegas scene for for many years. Uh, how was that that you got involved with that? It's a family uh, thing, I think.
2: Well, my my grandparents came to Vegas in '39, and they had successful restaurants. And my grandmother passed away in 2018, and hung two. So, um, we, we're now the fourth generation. My son, if you go in the bootlegger tonight, you'll see my son at the front desk. He's my partner in that, along with my mother, who's still very active and doing well. And we have, we, we have on the shopping center and in that shopping center is, uh, also the recording studios, which is the original hideout that Kevin Chirco built where he recorded disturbed five finger death punch and all those records that I mentioned earlier. Lots of big records were recorded there. What's the name of the studio? That was, it was called the hideout after he did, um, it's now studio 77. So what happened is after Kevin did disturbed sounds of silence was such a massive hit that he went and bought a standing building with three SSL rooms. And that's where he works out of now, but we're still very good friends, but he built the room there. So I have two recording studios, my room, the office is also the drum room and the next door to it is two control rooms and two vocal booths, really nice setup. And uh, my son manages and runs that. And then we also have a club in there. that uh, seats two, 250 standing, but like 150, 180 sitting. And it's just uh, put a beautiful Myers PA in there. I have uh, a bit right now I have a band called Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns. I'm not in the band, but it's a wonderful band here in Vegas. 14 guys that play funk, soul music. They play every Monday night and I just put the new PA in there. So I'm really busy managing all that, you know, keeping all that going. Um, and it's really cool because it's multi-generational, you know, all the rock rock guys come in all the time. I mean, everybody that comes through town from any of the residencies, they're all coming to the restaurant. Most of those people, um, Eddie trunk's been really supportive and helpful for me. Um, Recently, I became really good friends with Stephen Piercey. Me and him are working on some things, which is really cool. I really enjoy him and like him. And uh, so I got a lot going on. So I've got the live music venue and the restaurant and the recording studios. It's all at the same location at the end of the strip, South Strip, and uh, keeps me busy. Yeah, you
1: now oh, it sounds like it for sure. Do you? Do you it's still? Are good you good. still writing songs now? Actively, is that something you do on a regular basis? You know. You can never—that's
2: my true love, man. Still playing music, playing guitar, and, and writing songs. So, yeah, i always do that. I try to find the right outlets. I've been working the last couple of years with a singer named Mandy Lyon.
1: Oh, sure, World War Three, yeah.
2: World War Three, and I have an album with him that I'm really proud of. I've never done something this heavy, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's really good. It's kind of orchestrated and like zeppelin and I, I don't know. It's got its own sound too. It's kind of. Gothy, but it's still really heavy. So that's a record that I'm that I'm proud of, that I want to put out. And uh,
0: is he still singing in the same vein of when he did the World War Three stuff? Yeah, he's still a
2: screamer, but it, it, he he can hit high notes and DOS kind of singing, more DOS. And his deal his screams and stuff are pretty remarkable. I think he's found it's not so. I think it's the best thing he's ever done. Oh, so I'm excited hear- about that. Yeah, I'll send you guys some tracks. And we, we did like a couple of videos and like turn him into comic book hero, which it looks really cool. So that's been fun. I have to have that outlet, you know? So I, I'm doing that and I'm helping Stephen Piercy on the legacy, doing a, a legacy project right now. So I've been sorting through um, so many cool things and I've got like great live interactions with him and Warren when they're writing Round and Round and a bunch of cool stuff. So I've been helping him do that. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm still in I'm still in the game to a certain extent because, you know, and I'm going to actually play. I want to play at the restaurant because um, we have live entertainment there too. Um, I really miss playing. If I don't play guitar, it becomes, even physically, it's bad for me. I need to play. It's the whole thing of being grounded to the earth and having a guitar in your hands is pretty special and I'll, that's never going to end, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, you, talking about playing live, didn't you go out with... Um... Red Dragon
2: Cartel and play bass. I did. I um, so after we did beggars, Jake came around and I had saw him and I really wanted to like help him out and do something with him. And uh, he gave me like six hard drives of material, and I kind of sorted through it. Sometimes it was simple as like a two-bar guitar pattern that I liked or something, you know, or other more. Sometimes there were more structured songs or whatever. And so I wrote the lyrics and melodies or most most of them um and we put a band together which is red dragon cartel and at the time we wanted people that weren't like you we didn't want to do an obvious thing like get the singer from this band and the drummer from this band you know what i mean we wanted to try to do something fresh so we did that and then 2014 i went through to the record came out i think it's a really good record um did quite well really did it was top 40 record in in it's uh it did really well and then we toured seven weeks in america seven weeks in europe which is really fun for me and like two or three weeks in japan so that was a, that was a fun experience i like that record i think it's good
1: so how, how was that kind of getting back out on the road again and being a, a touring musician
2: um america was rough because it was clubs and stuff that i thought you know what I remember that you put a band on the road for like a month or so and they play every night, then they become a real band, you know. So I said, you know, even if it's going to be rough and we're not, you know, staying in the Four Seasons hotels, it'll be it'll be okay. because at the end of it we will be a good band. And we were. Then Europe was an absolute joy because we were treated well by promoters and I was getting to see places I hadn't been to. Prague and Finland and all through Spain and Italy, so I had a great time. But I'm glad I don't have to do that for a living. If that makes any sense. <laughs> oh yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> it's a I tough a life. If
0: you're, if you're in your 20s, it's a tough life. No less, you know. If you're in your 50s or 60s, it's. Well, I, I, yeah, I
2: don't know how they. I don't know how they do it because I have a lot of friends that are weekend warriors, you know, and they're going out and I've, they'll be in the studio Thursday and then they'll, they'll leave Friday morning early and come back. Sunday or Monday morning, they've been on five different airplanes. Lobby calls at four in the morning, 90-mile drives to an Indian casino. It's tough, man, you know, but that's how they make their living, and God bless them. And, they're, you know, anybody that's out there doing that, good for them. It's still fun, but, God, I don't have to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Fun for somebody else. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, or if you're young or you've never experienced that or you've never – but to do that in my mid fifties, to go to Europe and play with Jake, it was really fun. I had a really good time on that. It was like it was it's it was really fun. But for that moment in time. I mean, to. you
0: see bands like UFO are still out there. Saxon, you know, some of the British bands, especially, uh, the, the the touring is is relentless, and the average age of the guys in the band is like seventy. 70 you yeah. know, and. Uh, I, I don't know how they do it because I get one bed night's sleep and it screws me up for a
2: whole week. I <laughs> you know? know me too. I, I couldn't do it at this point. I really couldn't, but you know what? That's how they make it. That's what they do. And some of them are do a great job at, at it. You know, some of them are start to break down. We've seen that a lot. I'm, I'm not going to mention any names, but no, no, we've I, all yeah. seen, you know, but then we see Mick Jagger at 80 kill it. So, it depends on how much you want to fight, man. When you get older, it really comes down to like what's in you. you Absolutely.
0: Know? No, no matter what you do, you're you're right. It's if you still have the passion for it. it doesn't have to be music. It could be exercise. It could be uh, a lot of different things. If you still want to push through it,
2: it, that's the difference maker. Absolutely. That's totally correct. Good good observation. Absolutely. But those guys, that that's the living. That's how they make their living. You know. Uh, and the ones that had a few hits, they can keep playing until they can. You know. It's like Frankie Valley in the force. You can go till you're 90 if you. I saw Tony Bennett in 90 and he killed it. So right, you know. And then you also reach the point where you got to say maybe it's time to stop too. If you're not willing to do whatever Mick Jagger does, to me. I guarantee you Mick Jagger does a lot of stuff to be Mick Jagger, as far as stem cells and nutritionists and all sorts of physical therapists and you know. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is to...
0: is look at him, and I mean, right. he's got the same body that he had when he was 25
2: he i saw steel wheels tour he was every bit as good this time he didn't dodge one vocal didn't dodge tyler too a few years ago i don't know after now all the things that are going on with him but tyler like i went with eddie trunk to their residency right right before covid and he tyler and joe perry were so good it was astonishing how good they were really was just astonishing how good they were i couldn't believe i was looking to see what are they doing Is there another no nope, they were singing he was singing every part of it it was all Screams and Dream On, the whole thing. It's I crazy. saw them
0: on their first tour. I saw them open for Black Sabbath at the Garden in wow. 1974 on the first album.
2: How were they then?
0: You know, I I didn't know them, to be honest with you. They were, the first album had come out, and I, I bought the album after that, so they, they, they were good. Um, but that's how far back that I... I like them. And I've had, you know, different periods of time. I like them all through the 70s. And, you know, some of the more commercial stuff wasn't really my bag. But I've always had a lot of respect for those guys. And, um, yeah, Tyler still has periods where he's incredibly good. And then you see periods of time where, you know, there's a little bit of ringwear there. But
2: Well, I saw them in the 70s. I think it was the Rocks Tour in Vegas. And it wasn't good. But that well that was the head that was the the, hero the the, the, (laughs) the full-on heroin that that thing i I remember seeing stars like three weeks before and i thought they were way better but i was a kid but they certainly got it together in the 80s and 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 then they obviously went super commercial but there's still a lot of great stuff dude oh yeah yeah absolutely and uh but they're monsters but once again they're seasoned professionals that do it on the highest level and they take really good care of themselves and i think that's the key people that can continue to do that god bless them let them go as long as they can and then the others uh, you know sometimes people stay too long it's like a fighter you know and maybe it's time for them to throw in the towel you know can't, no one's going to do this forever but it's sure inspiring. Even Paul McCartney, I saw, it. It was wonderful. Um, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, he just came through New Jersey. Yeah, a couple of months ago. Did you see ago. him? Uh, I didn't. No, I know he's through uh, New Jersey, did the uh, the stadium uh, about a month ago.
0: Yeah, he's incredible. Great band. Absolutely yeah. incredible. I mean, he also looks, you know, you don't even think of 80 years old. You don't even think of 60 years old. He, no. he looks like he's like 45, 50 when he's on the stage.
2: You just think Paul McCartney is the same yes. so age. Yes. 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 He still
0: has the same presence and, um, Voice still sounds terrific and yeah,
2: great.
1: Well, um, Ronnie, hey, uh, Tom and I appreciate the time tonight. Um, hope you enjoyed uh, talking to us and because we enjoyed talking to you, that's for sure.
2: I really enjoyed uh, spending this time with both of you. I hope you come out to Las Vegas and I can you just some spaghetti
0: and <laughs> well my girlfriend's been trying to get me to go out there so there's there's a chance my oh, girl, girlfriend's a big fan of it I, i've never been there actually me so. either actually so yeah it's one of the places oh, i always want to come out go.
2: i will hook you up big time that's what i do now so awesome <laughs> i'd love to love to meet you both in person and thank you for uh sharing this time with me it was really fun to me i enjoyed it
0: no and thank you for giving us your time it was uh it was a great interview and i uh,
2: very much enjoyed it and, and appreciate it. Well, keep in touch guys and I'm going to send you, um, I'll get your email afterwards. I'll send you the, uh, wash away lyric video. What I'm going to do, um, is once a month I'm going to release a lyric video of music that I've done, mostly beggars, but whatever I feel once a month, just to get some more stuff out there. I had such a positive response to the wash away video. Um, and I just got a simple lyric video. It's not anything crazy or anything, but, um, really nice to see that that song touched people's hearts and uh so i'm going to continue to do that and i'll I'll definitely keep sending them to you and if any new music i'll send you some of the mandy lyon stuff too if you'll like it excellent appreciate
0: it yeah i'd be curious to hear that
1: all right well everybody ronnie mancuso uh beggars and thieves amongst other things uh thank you for uh thank you for your time tonight
2: pleasure you guys have a great night you too thank you take care bye-bye
3: I know it would come true Well, just a matter of time I hitched a ride out of a railway station Nothing left but my pride Watch the city lights fading away, yeah Thank God I got out alive And yet at times i to train